Please uh, take your Bibles and, if you will, turn, look to me to the book of Isaiah. We're returning to our series through Isaiah, and we're going to start uh, with it, uh, basically a review and overview message. So Isaiah chapter 13 through 23, uh, we're not going to, you know, literally work through all 11 chapters, but we're going to kind of give you a review and overview. Uh, this is where we're going to be heading in this uh, beginning this week into the next few months. Appreciated the uh, songs that we sung reflecting on the love of Christ. Um, and uh, just reminding, uh, especially because it's in light of this uh, section that we're going to be reading and studying and on God's wrath, you know, God's justice. And it's always good to have the sort of the understanding that God's love, which is one of the most, you know, probably significant of God's attributes, if you will, uh, it's good to also balance that with, um, with God's, understand God's wrath and God's justice. So I'd like to read from Isaiah, uh, not all three, all their 11 chapters, but Isaiah 14. It's one of the key verses within this section. Isaiah 14, verse 24 through 27. We read the word of God. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended it, intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of scriptures. A section that for most of us uh, uh, is difficult to grasp, uh, difficult to understand because of not only that it's prophecy, but difficult because, Lord, of uh, much of the uh, mentions of geographical places, of nations, of, of events uh, that we are unfamiliar with. Um, but, Lord, we know that your word is timeless. And even if we do not fully understand uh, how each of these prophecies were fulfilled in history or even has yet to be fulfilled in history... We pray that we would under, that that which is clear in this text, those at, those themes that are reflected within these eleven chapters, would be made clear upon our hearts. That we would see not just what you've prophesied, but we would see the one who prophesies. That it is you, and your word and your character that is revealed here. Father, we pray that you would grow grow us in a love for your. Your, your sovereignty, your control over all things in this world. And Lord, we have grown our love for your, your plan, your wisdom, and your love towards us. Not only towards us, but toward all the nations. And Father, we pray and commit this time to you and pray that we grow in our love for your word. Teach us, we pray. May your spirit guide us in this time uh, as we overview and review 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And recently I was just kind of reading on Dr. Albert Moeller's blog. He has a blog at albertmoeller.com or something like that. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, normally I just like to see what he has to say about uh, different uh, events in, in kind of in our, in our world today and different policies, different kind of uh, different uh, uh, laws that are being passed and things like that. Just kind of gets very insightful uh, for as far as how Christians are to view and understand our world. But I came across a prayer, actually a prayer that he had prayed a prayer that he had given at the, the seminary chapel on Super Tuesday, on March 1st of this year. And it was just a, a prayer that really, that it was his prayer for, uh, for, for the nation as uh, on the day that for, at least at that point, and it seems like every, every time there's another uh, primary or caucus, it's like, this is the important day. This is kind of the day that's going to determine the, the future of our nation and, and all these kinds of things. Uh, but on that day, he said this prayer. And I've, I want to just read an excerpt of that prayer because I find it's a very fitting prayer, especially for those of us, and if you, kind of, if you aren't aware, there's an election year and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, but just a great balance. I just found this to be a great balance of a biblical prayer that, that we would all pray, that even as we are thinking about it, the elections and things coming up this year. He said this, he prayed this. Almighty Father, we do come before you aware of the fact that government is not an accident, nor is it our invention. But rather, it is your gift to us in the very structures of creation as you have given us that which will lead to righteousness and justice and human flourishing. We understand that you have created government and given it to us, to your human creatures, in order to restrain evil and uphold that which is good. And Father, we pray for a government that we acknowledge we do not deserve. And here's the point that really just stood out to me. But we pray this in confidence, that it is not we who rule, but you and we commit this to you as your thankful people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Dr. Zamola's prayer reflects the balance between uh, actively participating in the political realm and the governments that he has established and given to us. And yet at the same time as we intervene, as we involve ourselves in, the, in our political world, yet we are to trust God. We are to remember that though, yes, our government rules but yet it is not really they who rule, but it's God who rules. God rules our government. God rules our political realm. And when we remember that, it gives us balance. It gives us a, an understanding, a trust, an assurance that even when things in the governments and things in the political realm do not work out as it does, because unless you are one who just flip-flops with whoever, whatever the tide is, a lot of there are going to be times in life where the politics and government don't go the way that we wish that we still will know and find assurance and comfort that God is in control of our world. God is in control of our realms. In fact, God not only rules our, our government and our, uh, and our politics, but God rules the governments and politics of all the nations of our world. God orchestrates every government of this world, every policy, every law that man would implement 
thinking that it's for their purposes, but God works it all together for his purposes, for his good. And this is what we need to know and bear in mind as we face an election year. Because when it comes to elections, especially an election year in a very, I would say, an increasingly volatile world, we may make of our election more than it really ought to be. We often read, well, this will determine who will be on the Supreme Court. And whoever's on the Supreme Court will then decide what will happen for the, the, <clears throat> the, some of the major issues of our day. And yes, that's true from a human standpoint. It is true. From God's standpoint, no matter what happens, his plan for you and me will never be thwarted. His plan for the church, his plans for this world will not be changed. And it's comfort. It's, and I, it's, it's what we learn. And this point is what we learn as we study Isaiah 13 to 23 in the next few months. We see that God is sovereign over all the nations. Isaiah 13 and 23 encourages God's people to not trust in nations, neither its politics, nor its power, nor its people, but to trust in the Lord, to trust in God. Now, that doesn't mean that <clears throat> I want to make sure that the, we don't go to the other extreme, that in trust in the Lord, we, we have nothing to do with politics. Well, I'm not, never going to vote. I'm not going to refuse to serve on jury duty. I'm never going to join enlist in the army and all those things, because God has established government. Make that clear. But God encourages us not to put our trust in nations, not to tr- put it, but to put our trust in the Lord, in our God. Well, it's, and if you don't believe in the word of God, you can just look on your coins in God you trust even. But this is what we'll be learning in the next few, in the next few months. And uh, I have to admit, when it's coming to Isaiah, thir- back to Isaiah, Isaiah 13, 23 is probably the most awkward place to come back to Isaiah in. Uh, it's because it's a, it's a section that's called the oracles against the nations. It's just a section of judgments. And I, I've read it, you know, read it through and I'm like, wow. Uh, I wish I had a few more months to study this uh, because it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty challenging. I've been mean, in my prayer. And we're going to read things uh, of places, of names, of people. Uh, we're going to read about uh, of prophecies for, uh, made that were kind of unclear exactly which events they refer to. And that's kind of the nature of prophecy. But it's even more so because these are not just dealing with places such that, in a sense, Judah and Israel, things that we're familiar in the rest of Scripture, but these are talking about other nations, about Babylon, about, uh, about um, Damascus, about Philistia, uh, about Moab, places that we generally don't study on a week-to-week basis. And so this morning, I really wanted us to do, have more of a, <clears throat> a review an overview. Uh, in a sense, it's this, today's sermon is kind of like a lesson, a Sunday school lesson. So <clears throat> it'll, it'll just sound like that to most of us. So a little less than a sermon, a little more like a, a lesson today. But we're going to give a review of Isaiah 1 to 12. And then we take a good amount of time to review Isaiah 1 to 12. Because understanding Isaiah 1 to 12 helps us to, um, to understand uh, chapter, Isaiah 13 through 23. Uh, you can't... Uh, Really, just start jumping to Isaiah thirteen twenty three and under, and not know what happened in Isaiah one to twelve. So let's review then Isaiah one to twelve. Uh, this is a bunch of reminders for us. First of all, the author is Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah he served the Lord and he wrote to the, his audience uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And he wrote at a time when, according to chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, during the reigns of four different kings of Judah, four different kings of the southern kingdom. Some of the dates that are given are approximately, would be approximately 740 to 680 B.C. Now, and when you look in your Bible, and particularly, you'll find that Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. First of all the prophets, from beginning with Isaiah uh, all the way to Lamentations, and then are the major prophets, and then going into the minor prophets, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc., all the way to Malachi. Now, Isaiah is sometimes called the major prophet, not because it's more important, uh, though it's first, but it's, it's called a major prophet, and all the major prophets are called that because their writings are larger or greater than uh, the shorter writings of the minor prophets. Now, the fact that it's called a prophetic book, uh, it involves two things. A prophetic book involves foretelling, foretelling the future, and foretelling God's thoughts. And we find both in this book. We find for, a lot of God foretelling of what will take place in the future, or at least from Isaiah's day, but also a foretelling, and telling what God says about various matters in, the present, in that present day. A lot of times, prophetic books share, we kind of cover this, four common themes. And we find these themes all throughout the prophecies, prophetic books, and we find it in Isaiah as well. Uh, number one, they expose the sinful practices of people. Number two, they, they call people to repentance and obedience. Number three, they warn people of coming judgment if they don't repent. And fourthly, they anticipate salvation, deliverance from the coming Messiah. Now, what we, learned about, what we also learned about Isaiah is that Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in all the New Testament. Uh, you find outside the Psalms is the most quoted book, but when you think about just the most quoted prophet, the single author, Isaiah is uh, that person. He's quoted over 66, around 66 times, or so 60 sometimes in the New Testament. It is fitting then, because he's so quoted so much in the New Testament, that the overarching theme of the book of Isaiah is that of salvation. That the book of Isaiah is about salvation, about deliverance. Uh, Isaiah's name even means that the Lord is salvation. The book of Isaiah warns Judah of impending judgment for their unrepentant sin, but also instills hope in God for their salvation. You see, the Lord would keep his promise to Israel. Even though judgment is coming because of their sin, because of their unrepentant sin, God gives, and, and God gives them hope that he will keep his promise by preserving a remnant and restoring them, and, and one day will restore them to the land. And that's, that's the impending judgment that would come upon Israel and the, and the impending deliverance that would come. There's a near kind of a, an immediate historical reference to that. But God's promises of deliverance go beyond the earthly events, the earthly events of that time, the earthly salvation. It goes to the future, to eternal salvation as well. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there are references to a salvation and a, and a judgment that seems much further. It has not taken place. Almost, almost a universal kind of judgment. And so <clears throat> there, there is the promise not only of a, of a future judgment that is going to be throughout the world, but also a future salvation, an eternal salvation from sin through God's servant. And as and one of the key themes or key characters within the book of Isaiah is this one called the servant. He is the messianic servant of the Christ as we've come to know. We've already seen in Isaiah chapter 1 through 12 
many of the prophecies of the servant of the Lord. And so I want to just kind of go right into reviewing then a little bit more about chapters uh, 1 through 12. Now, chapters 1 to 5, we might entitle Rebuke and Promise. It uh, provides an introduction, an overview of the book. And in these five chap- first five chapters, God essentially rebukes Judah for her rebelliousness, her rebellious sin. She who was chosen from all the nations of the earth was called to love God, to worship God, to obey him. But instead of doing that, they rebelled. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped idols. In fact, their worship was hypocritical. God was tired of their worship. Their leaders were corrupt and void of justice and righteousness. And so God warns his people of a judgment to come. A near judgment of, of that would come upon them, but also a far judgment as well. Interspersed in the prophecies of judgment are promises of hope, uh, of hope that would come also a near as well as far. We've looked at these uh, earlier. One such uh, far fulfillment is a hope that would come in the day, in that day of the branch of the Lord. Uh, and this is again that first reference, one of the first references to the messianic. Uh, branch of the Lord, the, the son of David, the Messiah who would come. He would be the, the growth, the, offsh- the shoot from the son of Jesse, from the root of Jesse, who would basically come and, and bring salvation to the world. So we saw this in Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, just this judgment that's coming because there's sin uh, that's immediate, but also that God would remember them. He would save them, he would save them, he would give a remnant for them, but he would also give them an eternal salvation through the coming future branch of the Lord. And then we looked at chapter 6 through 12. We might call this the destruction and restoration. And <clears throat> where greater destruction, a total destruction is foreseen uh, upon the land of Judah, but also a complete restoration is promised as well. Isaiah chapter 6 was that famous chapter where we, we is Isaiah's commission. When he's called and where we hear the angels, the angelic hosts crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And not only there we learn about God's holiness, but we learn about Isaiah's prophetic ministry. We learn that his ministry was such that it would largely go unheeded. Uh, and that's, we just, real, just realize that in many ways, that's, that's, the ministry, that's the ministry of Jesus as well. Jesus, when he walked on earth, proclaimed the word of God. He proclaimed it to many people. And there was an initial response by some, and even by many, but in the end, very many who would fall on deaf ears. People would turn away from him. And even today, still the same happens. When we arrive at chapter 7, chapter 7, we come to a a key chapter. And interspersed through all the prophecies are uh, kind of passages of historical events. They become, instead of poetry, they become written in prose. That is, they start recording for us historical events, kind of details that were taking place in those days. And chapter 7 is one of those. It identifies for us just the initial historical events surrounding not only this section, 1 to 12, but also the historical events that are important for us to understand as we look to 13 to 23 today. And so what, are this, what is this key events that happen in chapter 7? As a reminder for us, then it's this, that it first takes place in the days of the King Ahaz. King Ahaz, he's one of the kings of Judah, the second king that, um, that Isaiah ministered of that Isaiah ministered under. And in those days, there was an alliance between Aram, a modern-day kind of Syria, and Israel, the northern kingdom. Aram and Israel allied with one another against the southern kingdom, Judah, with uh, 
<clears throat> and so they allied with together to basically try to get rid of the king of Ahaz and put a puppet king there so that they could control the southern kingdom. And probably the purpose of, of all this was that they would then form an alliance against the Assyrian Empire. And so, yet when God, even through Isaiah, told Ahaz that their conspiracy would not stand, Ahaz did not believe God. He didn't believe it. Instead, we find in the historical record that Ahaz turned away from trusting God's word and turned to the king of Assyria. He turned to the king of Assyria and he actually gave some of the, the temple goods to the king of Assyria so that the king of Assyria would then come and deliver him, deliver them from the Aram-Israel alliance. Even when God offered to give him a sign, the sign of, and he refused for, to take a sign, so God gave him a sign nevertheless, and that we saw the sign of Emmanuel's birth, that the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and he'll be called Emmanuel. This would be, it would also, we looked at that, would have a near fulfillment as well as a far fulfillment, a near and far reference. And though despite uh, the promise of, of, of Emmanuel, who would be given as a, as a sign of the assurance of, of the destruction of Assyria and the destruction of, the, of, of Aram-Israel alliance, Ahaz did not turn to the Lord. And so God judged, God in that time judged um, Ahaz as well as the nation of Judah. He would tell, and it was very fitting because not only did they turn from God to Assyria, but God then says, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to destroy Assyria, but I'm going to use Assyria to judge you. I'm going to use Assyria. And that's what God promises uh, to the nation of Judah, to King Ahaz, because they did not trust the Lord. Despite this destruction that would be at the hand of Assyria, there is still in these chapters a hope of restoration with God. Chapters 8 through 10, while further elaborating on the impending judgment of God at the hands of Assyria, calls for Judah to trust the Lord. Remember passage in chapter 9 and into 10, this repeated phrase, his anger does not turn away. God's judgment is coming. But yet, nevertheless, there is hope for the people of God when they would, they would, that he would preserve a remnant, a remnant who would truly rely upon the Lord. This, uh, this section 8 through 12, or 6 through 12, would culminate in those, the promise of the Messiah once again. As we saw in chapter 11 of the promise of the root of Jesse, who would, bring a, who would bring a kingdom that is characterized by righteousness, justice, and peace on earth. And so, in response to this, in chapter 12, the people of God would then give thanks. A, a prophecy even of the future worship that the people of God would give to the Lord. And so, all this is basically a review of chapters 1 through 12. Uh, hopefully it was helpful to you it gives you just a reminder uh, try to use just some of the sermon the titles the key phrases within uh, the different sermons if you and I believe they're all online so you can go and listen to them and, and uh, if you need to refresh refresher on anything that we've covered because uh, this understanding of chapters 1 through 12 particularly chapter 7 because that's the historical uh, the historical event that <clears throat> really colors everything that is going to be given in chapters 13 through 23 uh, it will help us to kind of understand why God gives these oracles against the nations. So with that, we arrive at our second major section of Isaiah. You know, I have 15 minutes left. <clears throat> All right. In a time when Judah was surrounded by enemy nations before the establishment of the righteous reign of the root of Jesse, it's clear that first 
all these nations of the earth must somehow be subjugated. Because in order for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David to be established, then all these other nations must be submitted to God. And that will happen when God judges the nations. And that's what chapters 13 to 23 describe for us. When God, uh, God's judgment of the nations, his power over the nations, and particularly the nations that surrounded Judah. As an outline for us in the, just the remainder of our time, we're going to look at three major themes concerning God's judgment against the nations. That all these nations that Israel either at sometimes looks to as allies, sometimes looks to as threats, uh, all, God says, do not put your trust in them. Do not be afraid of them. Instead, trust me. Trust the Lord. And that's what hopefully we'll get, we'll just glean this major, this major point, this main point from our section today. So let's look through, uh, look at these kind of three major things, really introductory matters for us. And then in the weeks to come, we'll, we'll look to kind of section by section at the various oracles. First of all, repeated throughout these chapters is the word oracles. It's the theme of an oracle. Now, the Hebrew word translated oracle is a key word in this section. It's in, uh, <clears throat> in chapter 13, verse 1, we see the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. This word appears, and this usage appears 20 times in the Old Testament. 18 times is found in the prophets. 10 times in this section, Isaiah 13 to 23 alone. It's found in some of these verses. You can write it down, but just kind of go through it. As you, uh, it probably takes about half an hour to read Isaiah 13 to 23. I encourage you, just sometime during this week, if you have time, read Isaiah 13 to 23. And just kind of just start noticing all the questions that you have about this section. Because that's where we're going to go. And we look for, look for it in greater depth in the next few weeks. Now, God gives 10 oracles each marked by this term, the oracle, oracle of this, of this nation, oracle of this nation, the oracle of this city-state. And sometimes they're against, clearly against a nation. He'll mention the nation, uh, <clears throat> uh, nations such as Moab, for instance, Philistia. But other times it's against city-states. He'll, he'll pronounce a judgment against a, a city, but really a city that represents a nation. Just like even today, there are some places like, maybe like Rome or uh, in, uh, uh, that are a city-state, a re- that represents a whole nation as well. And so uh, there are cities such as, uh, f- uh, as Babylon, as, um, as Damascus, as Tyre, uh, and, and within this section as well. And when we look at these oracles, we find that the oracle, word oracle sometimes is also trans- can also be translated as burden. If you have a New King James or King James Bible, you'll find that it's translated burden. And when we think about oracle and burden, well, in our English language, they have nothing to do with each other. Why is it translated oracle in some places, and why is it translated burden? Well, in fact, even in, in, the, in our, my NAS translation, if I look to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1, the very same word there is translated burden. So what does oracle have to mean, do with burden? Well, the word oracle comes from the root, a root verb that means to, to lift something, to carry something, to, to bear something on, on your back, if you will, on your shoulder. Something that you would, that is, that's bearing some kind of weight or carrying some weight. This verb came to be used sometimes of bearing or carrying the guilt or punishment of sin. And so the noun form of this then became, can be used to refer to sin. Sin as a burden that is borne by the sinner. And here, when, when given as prophecy, we sometimes call it an oracle, 
But we cannot neglect the fact that when we think oracles, we think of, you know, some, some person who's basically just speaking on behalf of God. And that is what it is. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God who's giving him these visions. But let us also not forget the, the nuance here, the suggestion that is given by this word, that the consequences of sin are a burden which must be borne by those who are guilty. In this case, the guilty nations of the earth. God's, when we think of judgment, we tend to think of judgment in terms of individuals, but God's judgment applies to nations as well. In chapter 13, verse 11, God says, thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for the iniquity. See, the holiness of God cannot stand sin and the justice of God demands that sin must be punished. And this is the first, or this, so this is the first theme that we find. A second theme that we find in our in this section uh, is going to be the word nations, the theme of the nations, the world, the world governments, uh, uh, the, the, <clears throat> the, the surrounding peoples of the, la- of the world and the land of, around Judah. Now, the judgment upon the nations that we find here in 13 to 23 particularly points out that it is because of their pride. And we see this emphasis in 13.23, on the pride of the nations. That the, the pride is basically thinking of yourself more than you actually are. And the pride of the nations is that they began to think of themselves as more than what they really were. That they were, actually they lifted themselves above God who was the ultimate ruler. They think that they were the ones who ultimately had control of this world and again of their people. In the, half, the latter half of verse 13, verse 11 we read, God says, I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. When God speaks of Babylon in Isaiah 13, 19, he says, Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans, pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. When he writes in Isaiah 16, 6 of Moab, he says, we have heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury, his idol bolsters false. In Isaiah 23, 9, speaking of the kingdom of Tyre, the Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, despise all the honored of the earth. And then in Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 14, we see the description of the judgment of God upon the king of Babylon. And there, the king of Babylon, hopefully when we get to look at it, we'll see that behind the king of Babylon is Satan himself. And even the words that are described of the king of Babylon are also words that reflect of Satan himself. And I'll show you how when we get there. But I just want to read this description for you. Descriptive of God's judgment of the king of Babylon, but also of Satan. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, God judges the nations for their pride. Though nations and governments are God's ordained servants, when they forget that, it, when they forget that truth and in pride lift themselves above God, it will incur the judgment and wrath of God. For God is opposed to the proud. And although God will judge the pride of the, nation, the nations for their pride, it does not mean as the Israelites kind of wrongly believe that, oh, have nothing to do with the nations. God hates the nations. They're unclean. Let's not have nothing to do with it. But it doesn't mean that God is against the nations. In fact, God has a plan for the nations. And we see this not only in 13 to 23, but we see this all throughout the book of Isaiah, that God has a plan for the nations. 
We see it from the beginning, from Isaiah 2, verse 2. All the nations will one day stream to the house of the Lord to worship God. In Isaiah 2, verse 4, that there will be peace between the nations one day. In Isaiah eleven ten, we are told that the nations will resort to the root of justice. How will they have peace? How is it because they're going to all will turn to the Messiah? But until then, the nations have not turned. Until then, the nations continue to act with pride and they deserve God's judgment. And God's judgment will be upon the whole earth as we see in Isaiah 14, verse 26, where it says that his hand is stretched out against all the nations because all the nations are there. There's no single nation on this earth that, says, that, really, that truly submits to God as they ought. Every nation thinks that they are God, that they are have control and rule but God says he will stretch his hand against all the nations but that doesn't mean that God hates the nations just as God judges Israel God judges Judah doesn't mean he hates them he has a love and he has a plan for the nations as we'll see later on in Isaiah 42 uh, verse 1 and verse 6 that God's servant will bring forth justice to the nations and he will be as a light to the nations in Isaiah 49, 6, and I love this, this one, I can't wait to get here. We see a conversation between God and his servant indicating God's plan of salvation. He says to the servant, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, God is going to judge the nations. And we're going to see that. And we don't want to get, but we don't want to get, fall into the, the trap of thinking, well, God must hate the nations. No, God has a plan for the nations. God is, has a plan to choose to save people from all nations of the earth. He will save them through his Messiah. And this is not only reflected in Isaiah, but it's reflected throughout the scriptures, from the promise to Abraham to the, prom, to the, to the prophecies in Revelation, where we see people of every tribe, tongue, and nation brought to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so God has a plan, and we're going to see this plan kind of worked out in this judgment of all the nations. The third and last theme in these, in these judgments, then, is upon God, that there's a theme, a focus upon God. And that's the theme, and he's a major theme in all the prophecies, but he's a particular theme here in these, verse, in these chapters, 13 to 23. We learn three things about God in these uh, 11 chapters. First of all, we learn about the sovereignty of God. And this is not just, these aren't lessons that we learned, but these are lessons that Judah and Israel would have learned too. See, God is sovereign over the affairs of all nations, of all nations, whether small nations or great nations. In Isaiah 14, 24 to 25, which we read, it said there that the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand to break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. You see, Assyria, when you read the word Assyria, we kind of read, oh, you know, that's just another nation. But Assyria was like, I mean, if I, I, th- I think, it's like the United States of America. It's the mightiest nation in the earth. It has the greatest military might. It can destroy the world 10 times and whatever, over if it wants to. It controls so many of the other nations surrounding it across the world. And if you would read a scripture that says, God is going to destroy the United States of America. You say, no way. How is that going to happen? How can the mighty United States of America be brought to destruction where it will be no more? Well, God, that's what God says about Assyria is going to happen. Assyria was the mightiest. And yet God promises not only to use Assyria as to judge Judah, but he promised to judge Assyria. 
He will trample him on the mountains. He will break Assyria in his land. And we learn in these verses that God, whatever God intends and plans hap, will happen exactly as he wills. And we learn that it does. We'll learn it later on in Isaiah 36 and 37. See, the nations and empires of the world think that they rule, but it is the Lord of hosts who rules. God rules is what we learn. We learn about the sovereignty of God. Secondly and similarly, we learn also of the power of God. That no one is able to thwart God's plans because he is the Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. In 14, 20, Isaiah 14, 26, 27 that we read, we read that this is the plan devised against the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, who can frustrate it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? See, God's plans are comprehensive. His plan is to judge not just these 10 nations that we find here, but his plan is to judge the whole earth. His judgment is coming, and his judgment is going to be upon all, all nations. His hand is, of wrath is stretched out against all the nations. It echoes back to, the, uh, to Isaiah 9 and 10 when, he's, when his judgment upon Judah was that his hand is stretched out, waiting to judge. If all the nations of the earth were to somehow were to join forces even, were to get together and to work against God's plan, to prevent somehow, to try to prevent God from judging them, could they stop it? The word of God tells us and, and asks, could anyone frustrate it? Would anyone be able to turn back God's hand and say, oh, we're going to turn back God's hand? The rhetorical question expects an answer of no. No one. No one can turn back God's hand. No one can, uh, to, can change God's plans because they are not powerful they are not all the Almighty. Only God is the Lord of hosts. And that's, we've looked at this phrase. It's a, a very common terminology for God in, in Isaiah and the prophets, in fact. That God is Almighty. He's the ho- Lord of the hosts of angelic armies. And the sovereignty and power of God mean that no one can thwart his plans. We see the power of God. And very closely associated with the sovereignty of God. And because these two together leads us to a third lesson, third and final lesson about God, and that's the trustworthiness of God. Now, when we read again of all these oracles against the nations, it would seem that these judgments written here in this book by Isaiah to the nation of Judah, that these oracles were probably never read to the nations. Then it wasn't, a copy wasn't given to Babylon, wasn't given to uh, uh, Damascus, wasn't given to Tyre. But there was only a record found here in this book of Isaiah, in the prophecies of Isaiah, for the southern kingdom. And so it would be apparent that these were written, really, not for the nations, but these judgments of the nations were written for the people of God. It was written for the people of Judah, people of Israel, to hear, to read, to understand. It was written for the people of God today, for us to understand. That is, since God will judge the nations of the earth in the way that he's going to describe, the people of God are reminded then to not put their trust in the nations. The nations surrounding them are powerless to resist God's judgment. Instead, God's people ought to put their trust in God, God who is the judge of all. There is no salvation in the nations. Neither it's politics, it's power, nor it's people. There is salvation in only the Lord of hosts. And the same 
brothers and sisters, is still true today. We find ourselves in an election year with volatile candidates, don't we? (laughs) In an increasingly volatile world. Threats around the world are real. Lives are genuinely at stake. The governments are instruments of God who are doing their best, as far as we can tell, to thwart the evil in the world. Let us do our part in being faithful, knowing the facts, learning about the issues, learning what is at stake from a human standpoint. Let us be involved in our elections and our politics. Let us vote. But let us not put our trusts in governments. Let us not put our trust in politics. Let us not put our trust in our nation's leaders. For this nation, this mighty, and I would say wonderful nation, along with all the other nations of of this earth, are doomed to judgment. Let us put our trust in the one who is sovereign, all-powerful, and trustworthy. You won't find his name on any ballot this year, but we find his name written all throughout this book. And he is the one who will one day come and establish a kingdom of justice, righteousness, and peace. He will sovereignly rule at that point, but he is already sovereignly ruling this world today. Let us respond by trusting in him. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, it begins by trusting in his his son who he sent to die on the cross and rise from the grave for your sins. But it continues by trusting for those of us who have already believed in him to keep on trusting in him. Belief is not just something we did at the moment of salvation. Belief is what we do throughout our lives. Let's keep trusting God in the midst of all the dangers, all the threats, all the the possibilities that are out there in our world. Let's trust him to rule and to reign because he is sovereign, all-powerful, and trustworthy. He is the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this introduction into our next section on Isaiah. Help us, Father, to respond even as we, uh, as we look to various themes to respond by trusting in you. As we read through Isaiah 13, 23 in the next few months, help us to see not only the seriousness of sin, how sin requires a judgment. Help us to see that you have a plan. That's not that you, you judge, but not because you hate, but you judge, bring about judgment because you have a plan to save, a save people from judgment and that you've already put into, into effect through your son. Lord, help us to see who you are, that you are a sovereign, almighty, and trustworthy God. Help us to keep trusting in you, learn to trust you, and even in this upcoming election year, in a very volatile world. Lord, though we fear at times, though we are tempted to put our trust in our governments, in our nations, in rules and laws and policies of this world, Father, we know that our ultimate trust is ought to be and is in you. Father, you are the Lord of hosts. 
You are the one who reigns and rules over all. No one can thwart your plans and purposes. Father, in this confidence, we pray. And we are thankful for the governments that you place over us. Thankful for your word. Thankful for your promises. Thankful for Jesus, our coming King. In his name we pray. Amen.